Huckabee is brought to you in part by Trivita.com, helping you experience greater wellness. Tonight on Huckabee, Steve Scalise works for public safety and police reform. We can't lose sight of how important it is to have law enforcement officers uh, that do that brave and heroic work. Rabbi David Wolpe on why faith matters. If you want to believe that there's something more important than you in the world, it's a tremendous motivator. And country artist Craig Morgan joins us. That's Trey Corley in the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Bilbrey. And now, here's Mike Huckabee. And welcome to the Huckabee Show. Hey, we are just a week away from having our audience back in our theater. Now, seating is going to be limited so we can socially distance, but boy, we can't wait to get back to having some folks here with us. You can go to Huckabee.tv for information on how to get free tickets, and we're going to leave the light on for you. Well, we hear often these days that society shouldn't have any absolute moral standards. Imposing standards is oppressive, judgmental, and outdated. Like Linus in The Great Pumpkin, it doesn't matter what we choose to believe as long as we're really sincere in believing it. Well, pardon me for pointing it out, but that's, well, that's stupid. And I'm sorry, Linus. You see, there are all sorts of absolute standards to which we adhere. A rock band might be filled with a group of nonconformists, but they can't each play in whatever key they feel like. It becomes chaotic noise and nothing resembling music, not even grunge. You might concede Hannibal Lecter's sincere belief in cannibalism, but you wouldn't go to his house for dinner. It seems counterintuitive, but freedom can't work unless we all agree to abide by certain basic standards of right and wrong. And when we step outside those boundaries, chaos ensues. That can leave a bad taste in your mouth. And I'm not still referring to Hannibal Lecter. Let me illustrate the concept with a story from the days when my own kids were young. When my oldest son, John Mark, was only 12, he decided one day to bake a cake. My wife, Janet, and I returned home, and we were greeted by our son, proudly offering old dad the first taste. Well, it looked good, and I was already preparing some fatherly praise as I took that first bite. But what came out of my mouth wasn't words. It was the cake. It was so awful, I had to spit it out. And my first thought was, my son was trying to kill me for the insurance. But as soon as my tongue overcame its shock, I asked John Mark if he'd used a recipe. He said that he had, and then he said that he followed it to the letter. Well, except he didn't know what a dash of salt meant, so he decided that a cup of salt ought to be plenty. Now, the only value of that cake would have been for some cows to lick it. Now, my son worked hard on that cake. He had the best of intentions, and he sincerely believed he'd done a good job. But hard work, good intentions, and sincere beliefs meant nothing once he decided that he could make up his own measurement standards. That's literally a recipe for disaster. And it's a disaster in the kitchen, in the music hall, in manufacturing a car, are trying to run an orderly society and community. You see, freedom can't exist in a moral vacuum. It just can't. It makes some people uncomfortable to hear this, 
But without clear boundaries of right and wrong, the very concept of liberty breaks down. A person might argue he should be free to look at pictures that others find offensive. But what if it's a photo of a child who's being exploited? Then there's a lot more at stake than just the liberty of the viewer. There was a big controversy over separating children from parents who crossed the border illegally. But very few people brought up the facts that the parents of those children chose to bring their children along as they knowingly violated federal immigration law. Or that, as a pilot DNA test program proved, in many of the cases, those weren't even parents. But they were people exploiting children they weren't even related to. Self-government can't mean each of us lives by our own unique set of rules. If that's how you define liberty, then you're just going to get less of it. In fact, that's not liberty. It's license to live in complete selfishness. When people live outside the boundaries of a principle and agreed upon moral code, it always, and I mean always, leads to a government that's bigger and more intrusive. Just to force people to do the right thing. Not to mention creating an avalanche of lawsuits. If you think more lawyers and bigger government actually improve society, I've got a delicious cake recipe I'd love to sell you. Then again, no. Taking your money for that cake recipe would definitely be morally wrong. My first guest is a member of Congress representing the great state of Louisiana. Three years ago this week, he was also the victim of political violence when he and his colleagues were attacked by a gunman at a practice for the annual congressional baseball game. As some Democrats push to defund the police, my next guest says it's more important than ever to stand up for our police officers across the country. Please welcome House Minority Whip Steve Scalise. Congressman, it's great having you here. And I, I want to reflect on the fact that this must be a week for you that is uh, uh, pretty emotional in that it was three years ago, this very week, uh, that you almost lost your life. Uh, reflect upon what those past three years have been like. Yeah, Mike, um, it's great to be with you first, but when I reflect back on three years ago, uh, you know, look, there were a lot of miracles that happened that day, uh, and there were true heroes on that ball field. And uh, the two truest heroes were David Bailey and Crystal Griner with the United States Capitol Police, because, Mike, if they were not there that day, I wouldn't be here today. Uh, and there might have been probably about a dozen members of Congress executed on that ball field. Uh, we can't lose sight of how important it is to have law enforcement officers uh, do that brave and heroic work. You know, I, I recall uh, Crystal Griner, you mentioned her, an African-American police officer, uh, risked her life, took bullets for you and for those other members of Congress. I, I don't think anybody out there cared whether she was black or white, and she obviously didn't care whether the people who were being shot at were black or white. Uh, this was about human life, and it had nothing to do with race. And how can we get this country back where we're looking at each other with a sense of the fact that our skin color may be different, but our blood is the same color. Uh, by and large, most law enforcement officers are brave and heroic people, and they do difficult work. I mean, you know, when that phone rings, it's it's not somebody having a birthday party. It's it's something bad that happened, and we send the police to go and figure it out. And and if it becomes hostile, they're the ones that have to uh, that that have to resolve the issue. And you know, clearly there's some departments that are run better than others, and if there's a department. Uh, that needs to have a different focus on how to de-escalate, 
This is something President Trump has talked about, uh, including what the president just did a few days ago to create a database of bad cops that have been fired. Because, you know, if one cop's fired because he's bad, you don't want him just going to another uh, police department and them not knowing about it. But you know, at the end of the day, to, to, to paint all police officers that same way is just not right. The president came out with uh, some very specific initiatives this week. That was followed by Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina with a really, I, I think, pretty profound proposal from the Senate. Democrats in the House, where you have to work under uh, Nancy Pelosi's speakership, immediately said, it's not enough. It just won't be enough. Will there ever be anything that will satisfy them? And could we not focus on the common ground, because there is some, in the various proposals? Well, Mike, I, I go in and, and ask, what did they try to do when they had supermajorities? You know, they, they talk about a lot of issues, and, and sometimes they want to keep an issue going, uh, because there is a lot of bipartisan interest in solving this problem. We've got uh, racial unrest in our country, and, and look, if if you walk out of your house, whether you're African-American or white or Hispanic, you should be treated the same way if you're doing the same things. And, and we know in some communities that's not the case. And we need to confront that as a country. Uh, but again, uh, to say let's go undermine the role that law enforcement does uh, just would be uh, something that would make it worse. Uh, you know, we've, we've got some really good reforms in this package. Tim Scott's been working on this, by the way, long before uh, we saw George Floyd's tragic death. Uh, and so at least uh, a lot of people came together that want to solve the problem. But again, I would ask those people that want to criticize what the president took action to do and what we're working on this package of bills to do and say, you know, where was your bill uh, five years ago when Barack Obama was president and, and you had super majorities and you could have passed anything you want? I didn't see you bring the bill then that you say is so good. We need to then work together and, and capitalize upon this moment. I want to switch gears to something that is near and dear to your heart, something you've really worked hard on, and that is uh, looking at how nursing homes handle the COVID virus, because it appears that most of the deaths, certainly over 6,000 in New York, happened in nursing homes. Uh, this is something you have gotten very involved in and taken a leadership role in. Explain to us what has happened, what you've discovered, and what we need to be doing differently in the nursing home uh, area related to COVID. As I started looking at the data, we found something pretty alarming, and that is that over 40% of all the COVID deaths in America happened uh, among seniors in nursing homes. Mike, seniors in nursing homes represent about 0.6% of the American population. Less than 1% of the population accounts for over 40% of the deaths. 45 states, by and large, did this the right way, but five states, Mike, just five states, their governors went against the federal guidelines that were coming out of CMS uh, and decided to force those seniors back that were in hospitals. If you're a senior, you were in a nursing home, you started feeling bad, they sent you to a hospital. Well, if you were COVID positive, these five governors forced those seniors back to the nursing home and prohibited the nursing home from even testing to see if they were COVID positive to know if they were. And, and, and this, these are alarming numbers, by the way, Mike. We've identified over 20,000 seniors who should not have died. Uh, in the meantime, I've been hearing from parents uh, and grandparents of these seniors who died in these nursing homes who described to me the tragedies they had to go through. And, and they're asking these same questions, but they don't have a voice. So I'm gonna be their voice. Uh, I'm gonna continue demanding answers. The governors are already just pushing back and, and uh, they're just saying they don't have to give us the answers. Well, where's their transparency? And if there's an outcry amongst the country, 
I think you're going to see this national scandal get exposed for what it is. Uh, again, we had tragic deaths all across the country, but when maybe more than 20% of all American deaths due to COVID were avoidable uh, and should not have happened, I think it's something we all ought to know about. We ought to get answers and hold people accountable and stop this from happening again. Well, I think there are millions of Americans who appreciate uh, your leadership on this because uh, the unnecessary death of a lot of our seniors is a concern to us all. Uh, thank you. House Minority Whip Steve Scalise. You can follow the congressman on social media at Steve Scalise or his official page at republicanwhip.gov. Now, we still have a lot of great show ahead of us tonight, and Keith Bilbrey is going to tell you all about it. Tonight, why Seattle's gone wild and author Nick Adams. Later, Rabbi David Wolpe and pandemic trauma relief through Soul Refiner. Plus, Craig Morgan sings a Father's Day tribute on Huckabee. Next week, the winner of The Voice, Todd Tillman, and the high-flying Sandu Trio perform. Well, welcome back. My next guest says the government unions are the most powerful political group in all the country. They spend billions of dollars to get their chosen candidates elected. The worst part is the money comes right out of the paychecks of hardworking teachers, firefighters, police officers, and postal workers. Please welcome National Director of the Freedom Foundation, Aaron With. Aaron, good to have you here. Hey, Governor. Thanks for having me on. I want to first get right into the fact that a lot of people are members of a union, not because they necessarily want to be, but because they're almost required to be. And then they have money taken out of their checks that they really could use for their families. And that money is used to support political candidates that these workers don't want to support. Yeah, I believe it's one of the biggest schemes in American history uh, that this is happening. And as you mentioned, government unions, they're the number one contributors to liberal politicians across the country. And think about it, if you're a private sector business like a government union, your goal every year is to grow revenue. The problem is they're building it off the backs of teachers. So they pay for these political campaigns, politicians to go into office, and they agree to raise taxes on the private sector, businesses and individuals, so that they can take more union dues from more public employees. And you are, are fair enough in saying that if a person wants to be a part of a union, they want to pay the union dues, and they want those union dues to go to a liberal politician, they have every right to do that. It can be taken out of their check. You're saying that, they, that every employee has a legal right, not just that they could, they have a legal right to say, I don't want to, I don't want to participate. Yeah, exactly right. The U.S. Supreme Court two years ago made a decision, Janice v. AFSCME, that allowed public employees to opt out of their union and stop paying union dues. The problem is across the country, people are still unaware of their rights because who's going to tell them? Yeah. The government's not going to tell them. The no. union's certainly not going to tell them. So it takes a group like ours to go out and actually tell these public employees that they can leave their unions. What happens when people find out that they could keep their own money that they've worked for instead of giving it to the union bosses who live large a lot of times? Yeah. What happens? Do people get out of the unions and say, I think I'll use that money so my kid can go to summer camp or college? Yeah, exactly right. Our outreach campaign, it's full scale. We have canvases uh, going door to door into the offices of public employees in five states now. 
Uh, we send out mass mailers, emails. I mean, it's a full-scale campaign. Yeah. When we speak to somebody face-to-face, 40% of those people will opt out of the union on the spot. The problem is you've got to tell each and every public employee in the country that they actually have these rights. And then on top of that, you have government unions making it so difficult for these people to actually get out of the unions. I mean, we have thousands of people that we're representing in lawsuits that just haven't been allowed to leave the unions. Let's talk about teachers because it's one of the largest uh, unions in the country. Uh, the AFT, American Federation of Teachers, they give like 99% of their union money yeah. to one party, yeah. the Democratic Party. Yeah. I, I can't believe that every teacher in America, 99% of them, are all hardcore left-wing Democrats. They're not. It's, it's a horrible scheme that's been cooked up. And that's the same across the board. It's not just the teachers' unions. It's the state employees, county, city unions. They're all supporting Democrats because they go into office and they will agree to raise taxes so that you can grow government. Teachers, they do not support this policy, but a lot of them are scared. A lot of public employees are scared of retaliation from the unions. And that's why we exist, to have a legal team to actually be able to help these people get out and give them the confidence. And we're starting to see a culture shift in uh, public offices and schools where teachers are opting out in droves. Uh, you've had some battles of late uh, during the coronavirus uh, issue with Governor Jay Inslee of Washington <laughs> State. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Inslee was cooking the books on uh, the death rates in Washington State, and he decided to host a press conference to I say he was celebrating a thousand deaths in Washington state. I mean, it's disgusting. Mm. Um, but what we actually come to find is that 13% of people that died of coronavirus, uh, they died of something completely unrelated. And as the state admitted, there were gunshot, people that died of gunshot wounds that counted as coronavirus deaths. So we put the governor <laughs> on defense there and we filed a couple of lawsuits against him uh, just to put him on defense. They're charging, businesses that decide to open when he doesn't allow them to, $10,000. We're representing a water park uh, up in Washington State uh, in that instance as well. You know, I, I remember that it was uh, Jay Inslee who was one of the governors who wanted to keep everything closed as long as possible. So you're representing some of the businesses that say, look, we can operate safely. Yeah. We will operate uh, to, to protect our customers. It's in our best interest. But the, government, the governor wanted to just keep them closed indefinitely. It's complete overreach. You can't make this stuff up. These businesses can operate. They've proven they can operate. And they, they're certainly safer uh, under those types of conditions than being in a thousand-person Walmart. Um, so we believe that they should be able to reopen. Uh, if there are guidelines in place, then I think that private sector businesses, they can actually, it's in their best interest uh, to protect people, and they're going to do that. And we should let the private sector do that. Aaron, the Freedom Foundation does some pretty amazing things, and uh, we are so grateful to have you here. Our thanks to Aaron With for joining us, and uh, we hope you'll find out more about it. And by the way, Keith is standing over there. He's going to tell the folks at home exactly how they can keep up with the terrific work that the Freedom Foundation is doing for you. Keith? Well, I'd be happy to. You can learn more about the Freedom Foundation at freedomfoundation.com and follow Aaron on social media at FF Aaron with.
Coming up, Trump and Churchill author Nick Adams and Practical Faith with Rabbi David Wolfe. Later, pandemic trauma help with Jeremy and Tiana Wilde. Plus, country music stars Craig Morgan. More Huckabee is on the way. Go to MikeHuckabee.com and sign up for his free newsletter and follow at GovMikeHuckabee on Twitter. Welcome back. Well, if I compared President Trump to Winston Churchill, heads would explode at CNN. But of course, heads explode at CNN every day. But the two have a lot in common, they really do. And according to the new book, Trump and Churchill, Defenders of Western Civilization, you'll find out why. To explain, we welcome best-selling author, speaker, and Fox News contributor, Nick Adams. Nick, it's great to see you again. Governor, it's always a pleasure. First of all, tell me how this idea came of comparing Donald Trump and Winston Churchill. Well, Governor, I've been a lifelong admirer of both men. My father gave me a book on Winston Churchill's speeches when I was just 12 years old, and a couple of years later, when I was 14, I read The Art of the Deal. <laughs> so I was a big fan of both men. Not much in common when you first look at them, but as soon as you start to drill down a little bit, Governor, as I did in my book, Trump and Churchill, you find that the two men are remarkably similar. There are incredible parallels between the men and the times. Neither uh, concealed their true self or conformed to expectations. Both were plain speakers, clear thinkers, both alpha males, both had an acrimonious relationship with the media, both endured battles with the political establishment, and both followed, of course, monumentally weak predecessors. You know, you mentioned uh, the adversarial relationship that both of them had with the press. We certainly know that's true of Donald Trump, but a lot of people maybe are not aware that Churchill was constantly at loggerheads with the British press. They hated him. I mean, they beat him up all the time. Yeah, they hated him, Governor. And, and in my book, we've gone and reproduced excerpts from British national newspapers in the late 1930s, early 1940s. And I tell you this, Governor, if I didn't say to you, these are excerpts <laughs> about Winston Churchill from British national newspapers back then, if you just read the words, you would think that it was the New York Times or the Washington Post talking about Donald Trump. So identical are the criticisms. So identical are the accusations that are leveled. Uh, doesn't take things seriously enough. Too optimistic. Uh. Doesn't listen to anybody around him. Too overconfident. I mean, it's, it's constantly, uh, we're seeing history repeat itself. I'm sure you've had a lot of pushback and criticism, people saying, how dare you compare Donald Trump to Winston Churchill? Because, you know, over time, history tends to be nicer to people than in the contemporaneous moment. And at the time Churchill was vilified, he didn't even get reelected. People forget that he, after saving Britain, and he literally did, the people threw him out for heaven's sakes. They certainly did, but I don't think they're gonna do that in November with Donald Trump. Well, I hope I, not. I, yeah, for you and me both, <laughs> from your lips to God's ears, Governor. But, you know, I, I think that uh, 
Donald Trump is going to be a president very much appreciated with the passage of time. He's going to be very much a Van Gogh president. I think this president's legacy is going to be that he took America back from the brink and, of course, with the world's fortunes travelling with the United States, what's good for America is good for the world. When America's strong, the world is strong. You don't have to take my word for that. We can look back at the world back when President Obama was in office. Winston Churchill stood up against uh, Hitler and the Nazis and, and built a British war machine and fought that kind of war that was literally bombing raids over London and Liverpool and the major cities. President Trump hasn't had that kind of war where we're being bombed, but, but I would say the pandemic has certainly been like a war that has changed every American's life. Are those parallels something you can draw from? Without a doubt, Governor, without a doubt. First of all, I thought it was a very Churchillian phrase that President Trump decided to badge this coronavirus with. He called it the invisible enemy, something you might imagine mm. <laughs> Winston Churchill coming up with. Uh, and we do see in these times the leadership qualities of Churchill and Trump really come to the fore. I mean, this is a time when those kind of men are needed. And one of the things that I found in, in writing this book was that every single thing that had happened in both men's lives made them perfectly situated for the time and the challenges that they would encounter. But it is a brilliant book and a very astute analysis. And I hope people will read it and really get the parallels. Thank you. Great to have you here. Hey, Keith, where can folks find a copy of Nick Adams' new book, Trump and Churchill, Defenders of Western Civilization? Tell us. Well, it's available now at Amazon.com, or you can find it as his other books, plus video clips, speaker, booking info, social media links, and more, all at NickAdamsUSA.com. For the foundation and liberty and American greatness, visit FlagUSA.org. And on Twitter, follow at NickAdamsInUSA. Next, the importance of faith from Rabbi David Wolpe and pandemic trauma relief from Jeremy and Tiana Wiles. Plus, country music star Craig Morgan, number one hit song on Huckabee. And welcome back. You know, it's not just history that's under siege. The left is also targeting religious faith. To explain why it's so important to defend faith, we want to welcome a man who's named by Newsweek as the most influential rabbi in America. He's the author of a delightful book called Why Faith Matters. Rabbi David Wolpe is with us. Rabbi, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. We are happy to have you. And I want to get right to the heart of something that I find so refreshing about your book. You openly talk about doubt as a part of the process of faith. Why is it important to be maybe just honest and candid about the doubts we have? For some people who are sort of gifted religiously, they don't feel any doubts. But for most of us, I think, Doubt is a way of understanding our faith more deeply and better. Where do we doubt? How do we doubt? How do we work on that? Because faith is a relationship. And every relationship has, you know, peaks and valleys. 
And if you understand them and confront them and work through them, I think you find that your faith is both deeper and also more complex and resilient. I, I love that you, in addressing atheism, uh, you're not screaming and yelling, uh, but neither are no. you apologizing for faith. It's a wonderfully balanced approach to say, sure, I understand people maybe are atheists or they don't believe anything. But let me explain why it right. matters, and I think that is the delight of your book. So if you're talking to an atheist, what is the most important thing that you communicate to that person to help them understand that, uh, you know, that there may be a reason they haven't embraced faith as a part of their life? I found that the single most important thing to explain is that faith is not an intellectual proposition. And so the way to understand it is to realize that faith is caught as well as taught, that you have to sort of feel your way into it. And that takes time and it takes commitment. You also very openly uh, discuss that there's really not a conflict between genuine faith and science, that the two are quite compatible, that one uh, is virtually important to the other. And I thought that was refreshing to hear someone say, don't be afraid of science, right. but if you're all about science, don't be afraid of faith. You know, the great use of life, as William James put it, is to spend it on something that outlasts it. And if you want to believe that there's something more important than you in the world, it's a tremendous motivator, but you won't find that in technology or in science. Instead, those are the tools that we use to live lives of purpose. So I find science a wonderful and uh, remarkable invention um, and also a means of advancing our lives. But it doesn't conflict with the reality that we are all here for a reason, that we're all children of God, that we're all related to one another deeply. And those sorts of truths aren't scientific truths. They're truths of faith. That message would have a powerful impact if we all embrace it, especially as we uh, seemingly are in an endless conversation about race and racism. If we believe that there was a God, yes. a God who made everyone else as valuable as he made me, and everyone has the same yeah. level of intrinsic worth, it would be very difficult for me to have a, a less than equal view of somebody because to do so would have a less than equal view of God. I told a story the other day that my father told me when I was young about a, a, man, a boy and his father who come across a big rock. And the boy says to his father, do you think I can move that rock? And his father said, if you use all your strength. So the boy pushes and pushes and pushes, the rock doesn't budge. And he said to, says to his father, you're wrong. I couldn't. I used all my strength. And his father said, no, you didn't, because you didn't ask me. And if human beings would think that way, mm. that we are all each other's strength, and that what we do alone is nothing compared to what we could do together, we would be, as a country and as a world, in a far better place. Mm. There are some disturbing polls that show that younger people don't necessarily consider faith very important in their lives. What are some ways we can maybe engage younger people to understand what you talk about in this magnificent book of yours, Why Faith Matters? Why should it matter to a young sure. person? I think that from my discussions with young people, it isn't that they lack faith. 
It's that they distrust institutions. Mm. So the church and the synagogue and the mosque don't speak to them. But if you say to them, are you spiritual? They will say yes. They don't realize, I think, and this comes somewhat with age, that actually organizing spirituality is what makes it effective in the world. I mean, I say to audiences all the time, you all know the name Doctors Without Borders. How many of you know World Vision, which is the biggest charity by far in the United States, an evangelical group out of Seattle? And the reason it is, is because organized spirituality, what we call religion, is a force multiplier in the world. You can feel something in your heart, I tell young people often, but until you organize it and join with others, you can't move that big rock that we spoke about a moment ago. Mm. What a powerful, wonderful message in your book, and I hope people uh, will rush to get it. it. It's very valuable and so timely. This is, uh, Rabbi, an Thank important you. book in this time of such hostility to God and people of faith, and uh, I hope that all of our viewers will reach out and get Why Faith Matters by Rabbi David Volpe. Keith Bilbrey, why don't you tell the viewers where they can get this book, because they're going to want to and they need to. Well, you can get it along with David, The Divided Heart, and all of Rabbi David Wolpe's books at Amazon and all major booksellers. You can also find Rabbi Wolpe at SinaiTemple.org and on Facebook and Twitter. Just follow at Rabbi Wolpe. Still to come, pandemic trauma relief from Jeremy and Tiana Wiles, plus a heartfelt Father's Day story and song by country music star Craig Morgan, right here on Huckabee. Welcome back to the show. Hey, there is a new video streaming service that doesn't just entertain you. It might save your life or your marriage. It's called Soul Refiner. Let's take a look. I was a rageaholic. I was an alcoholic. And I was a sex addict. You have to understand the addictive dynamics that you're fighting. You will renew the structure of your mind. The Conquer series is the most successful small group series ever made. And we're just getting started. We've spent the past seven years working on something that will totally transform the church. Wounded and broken people are flooding our pews, enslaved to addictions. Marriages, families, lives are falling apart. So we decided to come alongside the church and do something about it. It's called Soul Refiner. Please welcome the co-creators of Soul Refiner, Jeremy and Tiana Wiles. So good to have you guys here. Thanks for having us here. Most churches do something with small groups, yeah. but they don't have anything like this. Absolutely. We've made these videos very accessible um, to everybody in the sense that, you know, when you watch something cinematic, 
you automatically en engage with it because it's visual. It just touches your emotions. But at the same time, we go deep with these subjects. We've made it um, subjects like pornography and depression and anxiety are subjects that most churches really don't know how to handle. Yeah. Messy it's really messy. Even messy stuff in life. Yeah, I mean, this is, is that, you, you hit it well, Jeremy. It's messy stuff yeah. in life. Yeah. Addiction, addiction to pornography, addiction to uh, even legal drugs, yes. but getting addicted to opioids and all the things that are crashing people's families. Yep. When did the idea strike, let's do this in a cinematic form for other people? Well, it started off with the Conquer series, which is a, a teaching cinematic series for men on sexual integrity. And um, when we created that, we really didn't think <laughs> it was gonna be used that much in churches. And now, six, seven years later, we've had one and a half million men who've gone through the Conquer series. One and a half million? Yes. In a hundred countries. And, and how do people access it? I mean, do they sign up and, and have it downloaded or yeah, streamed you to just, them? It's through soulrefiner.com. So you go there, you create a small group. Um, you can host that in your church or at your house. And, and you just you know, invite people to, a gen, uh, uh, to join your, your group. And, um, yeah. yeah, and you can access it on any device yeah. at any time. So it's it's for a small group, but it'd also be for the individual Absolutely. who wanted to uh, right. say, "I need that. I don't know that I want to sit around in the room of ten people and talk about it, <laughs> but I can at least get the material." Yeah. Did either of you have a cinema, uh, cinematography background? Was were you movie makers or anything? Uh, no, not really. It started off as a hobby. For <laughs> right. me, yeah. I was a journalist back in Denmark, yeah. but I she wasn't was at really the BBC, a Mike. filmmaker. <laughs> Mm. Yeah. Right, but no, it's just like an internship. <laughs> no, but we just love doing what we're doing, our craft. However, when we were going through our own brokenness, it was as if God created a pathway through our suffering. And he yeah. said, this is what you need to do to find out the answers, the solutions for your own problems. And we realized, you know what, as we're doing this, let's create an entire project out of it, a cinematic project that we can learn from and hopefully others can also benefit from. So when we create a Congress series, that's what happened. And here <laughs> we are today. Tiana, you're from Denmark. Yes, sir. Jeremy, you are not. How did you guys meet? I mean, you're, you're not the likely couple just to bump into each other on the street somewhere. How did, how did that happen? Uh, where was I? We, we actually met on a documentary uh, film project in the jungles of the Philippines. Wow. Filming a, an indigenous tribe, a, a savage tribe called the Matic Salugs. <laughs> Yeah. All places. Yeah, yeah, that was a documentary. I was a little crazy back then. I was going to say, there's a book there uh, just on that yeah. whole thing. Yeah. So you meet in the Philippines doing this documentary. Mm -hmm. Was it love at first sight? Absolutely. Jungle love. She didn't even hesitate. Oh, no. He, he looked like Indiana Jones. No kidding. Oh, and I was like, are you kidding me? This guy looks like Indiana Jones. And I was there baking bread on a rock. Oh, you know? yeah, right. Do you have any things coming up that we need to be uh, looking out for. What, what's next on the horizon for oh, Soul Refine? Oh We've got so gosh. many new series coming online. <laughs> we from have a marriage Parenting series. to marriage and a series on depression. And and there's one for sexually betrayed women called From the yeah. Ashes. And mm. that one is really interesting. It's very cinematic. It's just like the Conquer series, but on a totally different level because we filmed that one in Ireland. And uh, we filmed in an old prison, an old women's prison. And, wow. and it's just... It's just very cinematic and very deep. Well, it's so great having you here and Thank fantastic you. what you're doing. I hope people will find out all they can about it. 
All of the inspiring and informative content of Soul Refiner is already available, as in right now. I hope you, and if you're involved in a church, I really hope you'll check this out. It could be life-changing for the people that you are around, and it could be life-changing for you. Keith Bilbrey is going to tell you exactly where you can see more about Soul Refiner. Well, it's real simple. Just go to online to soulrefiner.com. You'll learn all about the platform and find affordable, no-contract prices for both individuals and churches to make it super easy for everyone to access the life-changing videos. Again, that's soulrefiner.com. Tonight, an unforgettable Father's Day story and song from country music star Craig Morgan on Huckabee. say a big hand for Trey Corley and the Music City Connection, but there are no big hands out there in the audience. But next week, next week, we got audience back and we are so excited about it. Right now, we're very excited for our next guest, a real favorite of ours. Craig Morgan, you know him as a country music star with hit songs like Redneck Yacht Club, That's What I Love About Sunday, and International Harvester, among many great hits that he's had. His latest album, I think his best work ever, God, Family, Country features a song that touches every parent's worst nightmare, the death of a child. The song is called The Father, My Son, and the Holy Ghost. It's a faith-filled tribute to Craig's son, Jerry, who died in a tragic boating accident at the age of 19. Craig, thank you for joining us. I am so happy to have you here in perfect timing on Father's Day to talk about an experience that rocked your world. It's been four years but I'm, a, I'm assuming that every Father's Day is a painful, painful time for you. The beginning of every day starts with the, with the, the thought of loss, uh, knowing that I don't get to call him. I don't get to talk to him like I do my other children. Uh, but I also have a lot of faith uh, and, and, and a lot of belief in God. And I, and I trust that, I have complete confidence that God is in charge. Hmm. And so when I do miss Jerry so much that it absolutely drives me crazy, I, I, I pray real hard and I, I focus more on the memories of my mm. son and think less about the absence. Uh, and also I have to remember I have four other children mm. um, that are there that I must, uh, I must be there for. Uh, and they're experiencing that same heartache as well. So, You know, it, it seems very evident, Craig, that had it not been for God's presence in your life, this might have been unbearable and beyond capacity to endure. So faith has played a big role in, in dealing with the grief and the hurt. Oh, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt. I, I, in fact, my wife and I discuss it, and we, you know, because of this and the, the, due to the song and everything, a lot of people have approached us and asked us, you know, you know they just don't know how we do it, uh, mm -hmm. how we manage to find any sense of joy. Um, but we tell him, you know, we, we have confidence. We'll see our son again. We knew his faith. Uh, we know our God. I know my, I know my mm. father in heaven. Mm. Uh, so I, I, know, I know that I will see him again and I live with that. 
it doesn't change the hurt. We, we still hurt. Sure. Uh, but everybody hurts. But without that faith, I, I, we questioned when we talked about it. I don't know how someone who doesn't have a relationship with God deals with I mean, I do. They, they choose alcohol. Mm. They yeah. choose drugs. They choose different things to try to replace that. You know, the album that uh, this song, that you're going to perform it for us in a little while, but what a timely album, God, Family Country, at, at a time when we, we feel like that all of these are the, the centerpiece of America and, and they're being systematically attacked, the idea that there is a God that we're accountable to, family and the nurture of that, and country. It's like people are ready to burn down America, and, and it's frightening to see this, and yet your album comes at a time to remind us of those great values. Imperfect country, sure, but a country worth fighting for. It wasn't like we did this in, in, in light of everything that's happening. Uh, God, family, country, those three items in particular uh, have always been the core of who I am and what I do. Uh, as, as of today and now, currently, I'm still a country singer, so, <laughs> so I implement or incorporate those three things in everything that I do, in particular because of my occupation as an entertainer. It's my music. Um, and, and we are being attacked. Our, our core values as Americans, uh, I think we're in a, in a, in a, a battle of our spirituality more than anything. Yeah. And all of those things kind of wrap around that. Um, but, but I also believe that those people that are attacking those things just yell a lot louder than the people <laughs> that, are, uh, that support those things, that support what makes this country so great. And that is God, family, and, and our country, mm. the love of our country, our nation. And a lot of these people that are attacking us and that are attacking those core values, they, they really don't know. There's a lot of ignorance. They don't understand how fortunate we are in this country uh, to have a voluntary military, people yeah. that are willing to put themselves in harm's way. As you did, uh, serving this yeah, country so in uniform. That we, so that we have that. And I'm still today willing to die for that. Mm. Craig, you know, uh, there's a reason we love having you here. And uh, you have a great story, a great gift of entertaining. And one of the greatest songs that I've heard in a long, long time that you're going to do for us here in a moment. And Craig is going to perform The Father, My Son, and the Holy Ghost. If you've not heard it, uh, be prepared to just have an incredible experience listening to it. If you have, I know you want to hear it again. As Craig is getting ready to perform it for us, Keith's going to tell you how you can get more of Craig Morgan and his phenomenal music, including this new album, that you will want to have, God, Family, Country. Craig Morgan's God, Family, and Country, including the hit song, The Father, My Son, and the Holy Ghost, can be purchased everywhere music is sold. For more information, please go to craigmorgan.com. On a personal note, Craig's song has touched me very deeply. I lost my son, Mark, in a car accident on a rainy night in Nashville nearly two years ago. Mark was only 39. I miss him, and I choose to celebrate his life every day. Now, if you know a father, who's lost a child, please share this song with them. Lights are shining bright is always downtown on the road. I have friends that come from out of town asking me to go. You see, there's so much going on. Why don't you come along and show us around? 
I tell them Karen's not feeling well, so I probably shouldn't go out. Besides, I've got a fixed list of things I need to do around the house. Then I hang up the phone, turn the radio back on, and sit back down. I know my boy ain't here, but he ain't gone. In the mornings I wake up, give her a kiss, head to the kitchen. Pour a cup, wake me up and try to rouse up some ambition. Go outside, sit by myself, but I ain't alone. I've got the Father, my Son, and the Holy I've been beat up, I've been pushed and shoved, but never ever really knocked down. Between mom and dad, Uncle Sam and friends, I somehow always pulled out. But the pain of this is more than I'd ever felt before. Yeah, I was broke. I cried and cried and cried until I passed out on the floor. Then I prayed and prayed and prayed Till I thought I couldn't pray anymore Then minute by minute Day by day, my God, He gave me hope I know my boy ain't here, but he ain't gone And in the mornings I wake up, give her a kiss it too Pour a cup, wake me up and try to rouse up some ambition Go outside, sit by myself, but I ain't alone I've got the Father, my Son, and the Holy Ghost I love, I hope, I pray, I cry, I heal the little each day inside won't completely heal till I go home. In the mornings I wake up, give her a kiss, head to the kitchen. Pour a cup, wake me up and try to rouse up some ambition. Go outside, sit by myself, but I ain't alone. Father, my son, and the heart.